Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and fun fact about me, there's a song about me, and it's called Jason H. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think uh, I think our, our producer, David Rosen, can write that song because uh, that's that's his specialty. I can't wait to hear it. Um, that's going to be my weekend plans. There you some, go. <laughs> some sweet synth riffs, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> so we are excited here to be kicking off our sixth season of awesome movie year. I can't believe we succeeded and we still have a podcast. It's I I had no faith in us whatsoever. And yet here we are. I thought we would be to this point, but I thought that one of the listeners would have stabbed you, Josh, <laughs> by now and we would have had to replace you. So I'm glad you haven't been stabbed. I too am glad that I haven't been stabbed. So thank you for that. And I would would you have replaced me with the the person who stabbed me? Depends upon their movie knowledge, Josh. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm glad that you. That's the only factor that you're taking into account. I, I couldn't necessarily hold the stabbing against them based on how well they kind of had a background in movie knowledge and everything. No, no, that's totally fair. So. <laughs> In our sixth season, we are kicking off a look at the films of 1984. And as always, we are starting with the box office champion of the year, which is Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop with the theme song Axel F, of course, uh, related to Jason's theme song, Jason H. Slightly, slightly, not as good, I think, probably the Jason H theme song. No, because... We'll he, I had stupid Dave. He had Harold <laughs> Faltemeyer, king of 80 synth soundtracks. Yeah. And I got Dave. Yeah, hey, I Dave. didn't even start on it yet. And I already blew it. Man, <laughs> Dave is like the, the king of indie horror soundtracks, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying, Dave, you're no Harold Faltemeyer. Yeah, yeah. that's mm-hmm. fair. Um, True. <laughs> so Go train movie. under Giorgio Madober for a, Maroder for a while and we'll talk, Dave. <laughs> Okay. I'm sure Dave would love to do that. Isn't George, is Giorgio Moroder still alive though? Yeah, he's still making music he's from kicking. what I understand. Yeah. All right, there you go, Dave, get on that. And so, right. so Josh, for people who don't know, these were the guys who really brought the electric synth sound, uh, one, in a lot of ways over to the US, but two, mainstreamed it through these films. And Harold Faltermeyer was the king of the 80s synth soundtrack and uh, Giorgio Moroder, produced a lot of music not just for movies but throughout the pop world using these sounds and that that's why we keep referencing it guys and it relates to the film Beverly Hills Cop like you said which we're covering today yes yes uh, of course Harold Faltermeyer responsible for the score to this film and the theme song Axel F which is one of the most notable elements of this movie and and this was probably Harold Faltermeyer's like pinnacle, I would say. Top Gun also, I'd say. There you go. Yeah. So uh, like you said, the king of the 80s synth soundtrack. And everything, pretty much everything about this movie was successful. It was the number one movie at the box office. It grossed $316.4 million on its budget of $13 million. So that's Quite good. Big profits there. And it it was just, it was a big pop culture phenomenon. It was, I mean, Eddie Murphy was a big star, but this really 
just increased how much of a huge star he was. It was nominated for two Golden Globes for Best Picture Musical or Comedy and for Best Actor Musical or Comedy for Eddie Murphy. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. And that score is so iconic. I was sort of surprised it wasn't nominated for more major awards. It was nominated for a BAFTA for best score, although it didn't win. Um, It did, however, win a Grammy. And I didn't check when. I know we've talked about before the weird deadlines of the Grammys, so possibly a while later. But it did win a Grammy for best score soundtrack album. And it also reached number one on the U.S. Billboard 200. Yeah, I mean, and several of the singles as well uh, charted very high. And I think this is like uh, we we had in our our last season, in our special bonus episode, we talked about Saturday Night Fever. And I think that was another one that has this such an iconic soundtrack that maybe didn't get the awards recognition that it deserved at the time, even though it was incredibly popular. And this is kind of similar. And this movie was generally well-regarded by critics. I, I, I found kind of mixed to positive reviews, but uh, I think they were they were mostly, mostly positive about this film. Roger Ebert was a little mixed on it. He said, what's this movie about anyway? Is it a comedy or an action picture? Audiences may expect a comedy, but the closing shootout seems inspired by the machine gun massacre at the end of Brian De Palma's Scarface. And the whole business with the cocaine is so very, very tired that when we see the boss and his henchmen in the warehouse, we feel like we've switched to another movie, maybe a dozen other movies. Eddie Murphy is one of the smartest and quickest young comic actors in the movies, but he is not an action hero, despite his success in 48 Hours. And by plugging him into an action movie, the producers of Beverly Hills Cop reveal a lack of confidence in their original story inspiration. And I think the idea of like action and comedy coexisting is very, very common now, but maybe was less so at this point. Yeah, I took that from it. And uh, also the other thing is, uh, as he alluded to, this script went through many different drafts, some of which were comedy based, some of which were action based. Sylvester Stallone wrote a draft when he was going to play Axel Foley and that was going to be the big action version and the ending was going to involve uh, him driving a stolen Lamborghini and, and a game of chicken with a freight train, Josh. So, but yeah, it's kind of interesting that he's like action and comedy. What? <laughs> right. And that was, I think that was actually sort of a, a, a common sentiment expressed here. And I, there was at least one other review I saw. I don't think it's in a, one of my quotes, but at least one other review I saw that that mentioned, that compared that, that big finale to Scarface with all the, the big machine gun shootout at the fancy house of the villain in this movie. But yeah, again, obviously action comedies are, are extremely common now. And maybe this was in a way the birth of that. This and maybe the original Lethal Weapon, two movies that kind of... Uh, brought that genre to life. I was going to mention Lethal Weapon because when we covered Lethal Weapon 2 in our 89 season, uh, we went back and watched Lethal Weapon. At least I did, Josh. And, uh, you know, that is that is more brutal than this. But it was a couple of years later. So maybe it had already become a little more accepted as action and comedy mixing. But, uh, yeah, I think you're right, Josh, that these are two early huge hits uh, in the action comedy genre. Right. And and sort of by definition, as you said, this started out as a more straightforward thriller. It was going to star Sylvester Stallone or potentially some other 
uh, actors who are not comedians. And once they bring in Eddie Murphy, it just kind of naturally evolves that way. And maybe they didn't fully understand the way that they were developing this new genre, but it all worked out very well. So Josh, the we'll get to the alternative casting early here today. Mickey Rourke was the original guy they were going to use. Uh, Sylvester Stallone, and then Richard Pryor, which would have been, you know, more comedy based. Al Pacino, who is apparently up for everything all the time. And James Caan. Right. Well, yeah. And other other than Richard Pryor, uh, I mean, none of those other none of those other actors would have would have brought the comedy, I don't think. So uh, you don't think and, James Caan would have brought his hilarious. Hey, we talked about <laughs> in, uh, in our 1996 season, we talked about uh, James Caan and Bottle Rocket, which is certainly a comedic performance. From yes, him. he's very funny in that. I guess yeah. I was thinking of him in Mickey Blue Eyes, where maybe it didn't translate as much. So. Sure, sure. <laughs> and Sylvester Stallone used elements of the screenplay that he wrote in his film Cobra that was not a comedy at all that he went on to make instead of this. So it worked out for everyone, apparently. But Josh, couldn't you see this script being like a straight action script with like no jokes in it and like the uh, super producer Simpson and Bruckheimer talking to Stallone and being like, no, we wanted a comedy. This is a comedy. These are all the jokes, (laughs) you know? So, and then you don't believe me? Wait until I do Oscar. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could absolutely see this as a straightforward action movie. It's not hard to imagine how it was initially conceived that way, but I think it's far better like the way that it ended up. Well, from what I understand, it was actually, it was Don Simpson, one of the, you know, the big super cocaine producers of all time. And he wanted it to be a comedy. And then it just kind of went through all these different waves of development. And then Stallone quit like two weeks before they were going to make it. And Eddie Murphy came on and, uh, the rest is box office history. That it is. Uh, Janet Maslin in the New York Times, I think, had a better understanding of the combination of genres here. She says, although Beverly Hills Cop is less strictly a comedy than Trading Places was, it loses nothing by allowing Mr. Murphy a broader role. His brashness is as well suited to detective work as to sweet talking his way out of trouble. He comes closer than ever to being able to carry a film single-handedly, although this one surrounds him with an excellent supporting cast. Martin Brest displays a particular talent for positioning just the right actors in small roles and letting them make their marks succinctly. John Ashton and Judge Reinhold are well-teamed as a stuffy police sergeant and his more laissez-faire young partner. To the extent that Mr. Murphy has a true co-star here, it is the city itself which throws up a long parade of obstacles to his mission and which seems a constant reproach to his renegade ways. But Mr. Murphy knows exactly what he's doing and he wins at every turn. Except at having a Detroit accent. Did you notice that the, everyone in Detroit at the beginning of the movie, none of them spoke with any Midwestern accents. They all sounded like they were from the New York Police Department instead. Uh, I guess. I mean, it doesn't sound... At least he's not trying to do some sort of accent and failing. So I would, I would prefer that he just talks like Eddie Murphy rather than putting on some kind of voice that doesn't work. I think you're right, Josh. Uh, And that that review is fair. Um, You know, Beverly Hills Cop, the idea you have to use the city as part of his obstacle. And uh, I thought thought they succeeded a lot there, but they could have even ramped it up even more if they wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I think calling the city a character... Uh, or the true co-star is maybe a, a bit of an exaggeration. I mean, it, it, it's really just 
the sort of stereotype of the city, you know, all we have to know is that it's snooty and rich and we get some shots of Rodeo Drive and he stays in some fancy hotels. Um, but beyond that, it could have been, you know, he could have traveled to to any rich enclave. He could have gone to the Hamptons or something like that. And it probably would have been pretty similar. Dave, write that down. Hamptons cop. Yeah, that could, could have <laughs> been this. Could have been the sequel and uh, did not end up happening that way. And finally, uh, Kirk Ellis in The Hollywood Reporter said, larcenously full of the high-tech production values one has come to expect from wunderkind producers Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, this lickety-split action comedy is distinguished by the wry, character-conscious direction of Martin Brest who coaxes a silver bullet performance from star Eddie Murphy that's practically criminal in its accuracy. What matters to Brest and screenwriter Daniel Petrie Jr. is the streetwise Axel Foley's assault on Beverly Hills mores, observed in a series of nimble-witted vignettes that find him alternately at odds with and abetting the efforts of the coat-and-tie local police force. Indeed, the movie's greatest pleasures arise from watching Eddie Murphy bluff his way into and out of various compromising situations, assuming a variety of fake identities with an uproariously reckless abandon that galvanizes his reputation as one of today's leading comic talents. So lots of praise for Eddie Murphy there. Yeah, but it was a little backhanded too, wasn't it? Or is like Martin Brest coaxes a silver bullet performance out of him. It's like... I think Eddie Murphy's proven he could act pretty well, no matter what the situation is, save for maybe Norbit, um, you know. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It's I, I, that that was a little all over the place that review for me, and uh, I just want to move on from it. No, well, all right. Fair enough. I mean, I think giving credit to Martin Brest is fair. I mean, and I don't know that it's necessarily saying that like. All the credit for Eddie Murphy's performance goes to the director. But I think when you have someone like that, who's such a larger than life figure, you do need the director to make sure that they fit into the movie. And I think that's something that he does. He allows Eddie Murphy to be charismatic and be funny and be Eddie Murphy, but he still always fits within the movie. He's still always Axel Foley as much as he is Eddie Murphy. So I think that that deserves credit to the director. I liked your review of the review better than the review because like that guy's like, it's so accurate. And I'm like, what, what did you embed yourself with a police unit that we don't know about? Send your reviewer, yeah. you know, so that's, that's, I get what you're that's, saying. That's what you do. Yeah, you, you, you're right. There are definitely comedies where someone's playing so big that they're in a different movie than the rest of the, the piece. But this is not that. So, yes, he did a Eddie Murphy did a very good job and, and so did Martin Brest. There, are right. you happy? I, I am happy because I think those things are both true. So, um, uh, Jason, had you had you seen this movie before? Is this one that you watched as a kid? That's such a good question. I have oh. zero recollection of it, but every recollection of seeing parts of it or parts of the second one or the third one, maybe I've never seen it. Maybe not until this podcast that I ever fully watched Beverly Hills Cop, Josh. This is a revelation that I am exploring right now. How about you? Yeah, I kind of feel the same way in that I'm pretty sure I had never seen it. I know that I saw Beverly Hills Cop 3 for some reason when it was in, <laughs> when it was in theaters. Um, I mean, I think because it was at a time when I just, you know, probably went to see whatever was the big movie that was in theaters that week and I went How to see that. How did you like that one? 
I don't really remember, but I know it doesn't have a very good reputation. So uh, I'm not sure. But I like it, that you saw that and Blues Brothers 2000, as you mentioned in another po- of our, uh, episode of our podcast. But you had not seen this or the Blues Brothers, the original. <laughs> yes, and I still have not seen the the original Blues Brothers. But Blues Brothers 2000, I, I distinctly remember being very, very, very bad. Uh, both Blues Brothers 2000 and Beverly Hills Cop 3, directed by John Landis. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I don't think I had seen it. But like you, I felt like I maybe had seen bits of it on TV. Or it's one of those things that was so prevalent in pop culture that you definitely have absorbed some of it, even if you haven't sat down to watch the whole thing. But I, I'm pretty sure this was my first time actually watching the whole movie. I think you're right, Josh. And especially, like, even just impressions of the Eddie Murphy laugh, which is on display maybe a little too much in this film, you know, uh, <laughs> just became so ubiquitous all over the place. So I think you're right. It, it permeated to a level, even if you hadn't seen the movie, you knew the movie. Right. Yeah. I think that's the key thing. And, and I don't, I think the laugh is just the right amount in this movie, but you're, you're, you're correct that it's all over the movie. So is there any other background info on this that you wanted to share, Jason? Yeah. It spent 14 weeks at number one at the box office, which it was at the time tied for the most ever, and it was like 13 in a row. Then it dropped one and then to number two, and then it uh, came back at number one. That and Tootsie were the two movies that had spent 14 weeks at number one. Obviously, we started to reference the music, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot about. Dave, when did you first see it? And at the time, were you doing the Neutron Dance? <laughs> I may or may not have been. I don't remember, just like I don't remember if I've seen this. I agree with both of you. I, I feel like it's one of those movies where it's like, you feel like you must have, but at the same time, it, it kind of like just didn't feel like I had seen it once I started watching it. And I, I actually watched it uh, the other day w- with my brother-in-law and he asked me as we were getting started, is this the one with the amusement park? And I like confidently said yes, um, because I was so sure of that. But uh Obviously, I was wrong. Is that three, Josh, or is that? Yeah, that's that's the third one, I think. Yeah, yeah. so they, they all run together. I yeah, guess. but I think they like you know, like a lot of these things, they they had to up the action and in each sequel, and so they right. created it. It's became a huge action thing. So, Dave, as a as a, a synth based musician, did the Axel mm-hmm. F theme song was that something that you were aware of, even if you hadn't seen the movie? Did it influence you in any way? Sure. Yeah. That that is one of the great all time synth bass scores. So agreed, ab- agreed. absolutely. Yeah. One more. One more little fun fact, Josh. This is the first film to be released in over two thousand theaters. Back in the day, we had a thing called movie theaters, and movies <laughs> would play in them. And this one played in over two thousand. It was the first one to be released to that many. Uh, but um, before that, people listened to things on radio. Yes, this was really the first time that people went to the cinema. It's uh, amazing how groundbreaking this movie was. So we'll come back then in a moment and talk our general thoughts on Beverly Hills Cop. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this season premiere of our season on the films of 1984. We're talking about box office champion Beverly Hills Cop, which as previously established, we may have seen in the past or not, but we definitely saw recently. And um, Jason, were you a fan? Did it live up to the hazy memories that you may or may not have had of it? Josh, 
Like the people who voted for the favorite motion picture at the People's Choice Award for 1984, I too enjoyed this film quite a bit. It's super fun. It's super breezy. If I had popcorn, I would have eaten it all just, <laughs> just watching this thing. The action and comedy, which as we referenced, might have been new and off-putting at the time for some reviewers, uh, worked really, really well here. And Eddie Murphy's super fun, a, a, a great leading man. Mid-20s, cocky, but not arrogant, you could say. Um, always outsmarting the Beverly Hills Police Department. I really liked it. It's just a fun movie to watch. Yeah, I agree. I liked it too. I, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I wasn't sure, again, having seen the third one, which is not good. Um, and, and, and I mean, and having seen a lot of bad Eddie Murphy movies over the last 20 plus years or whatever, I wasn't sure if this was something that would hold up, but I think you watch this movie and you're reminded of why Eddie Murphy became a huge star, because as you say, he's fantastic in this. He's so funny, but he also fits in with the story. I think that's one of the things that this movie succeeds really well at is that it mixes the action and the comedy effectively. And even now, when we've seen so many action comedies and it's a common thing, a lot of those movies you watch and they don't have the balance right. You know, they're so goofy that the action stuff feels like an afterthought or they get so caught up in the action that they lose the jokes. And this movie, I think, has a perfect balance of it. And right from the beginning, as, as I was, you know, just sat down to watch this movie and it starts with that great car chase with the the cigarette truck with the heat is on playing with the heat is on playing <laughs> and the heat is on is great. And I had forgotten that the heat is on was actually written for this movie. I mean, so many popular songs that were created for this movie, but right away watching that sequence is like, this is a great car chase. And this is like, I didn't necessarily expect this movie to have great car chases. I figured it would have great Eddie Murphy jokes. And right away, I was just really drawn into it. I agree with you. And I think, um, we have already referenced uh, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. And I think a lot of people today obviously still know who Jerry Bruckheimer is, although the height of his powers was probably as a solo producer, the late 90s early and uh, mid early 2000s. Right. But as a team, they were just banging these like kind of uh, adrenaline pumped movies out in the 80s and you could probably go into a room and they say, we would need this car chase and this gun battle, but we want this type of comedy. And, you know, uh, Simpson is kind of like, what, what would you call him? Like a mythological warning at this point in time in Hollywood. Like he was, he was no producer, probably partied as hard as he did, but, and he died because of it. But also uh, he made a lot of, good movies. So I think uh, this this is probably one that they could rank up with the, with some of their best. And and you mentioned Eddie Murphy, Josh, and, and we know like up and down and up. And I think he's up right now. But this was the first of seven in a row that he opened at number one. So that's that's a nice he had a run there for a minute. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was again, he was a huge star already. I mean, the, some of those reviews, they referenced Trading Places and 48 Hours, which were both really, really big hits for him. Um, but this just cemented that status for him as as one of the biggest movie stars of the 1980s. And and again, you can watch it and you can see why. I think we've had a few instances like this where we watch movies that are really star-driven. I'm thinking of like Slapshot with Paul Newman. And you watch that movie and the presence of that star is just so 
magnetic that you are reminded of why people were completely drawn to them. And I think that's the case here with Eddie Murphy. But as those reviews reference, it's not just him. The, the movie has a great supporting cast and they all do exactly kind of the right thing. They give the right performance for their roles, whether that's Judge Reinhold as kind of the sidekick character who became a bigger, more important character as the movie sequels because he was the only one who kept returning along with Eddie Murphy. Or, or even small things like uh, Bronson Pinchot as Serge, the He's art gallery assistant. This. He really is, yeah. Because he didn't go over the top like he could have, you know, when he became Balky, it was a little more kind of, it was obviously, hey, remember, this guy was really funny. Let's make him Balky, right? And then on the network sitcom, of course you go a little bigger. But here he's just, you know, he's just the right amount of snooty and kind of like Beverly Hillsy towards Axel. Like, you know, I just thought, you know, don't be stupid. Just really funny stuff. And, you know, he did that. You know, Damon Wayans has a little part in there. Paul Reiser. I think Rick Overton. So I think Murphy probably cast a lot of these comedians that he worked with in these um, smaller parts. Not that Bronson Pinchot was a stand-up, but those other guys are. So. Yeah, and they they do well in those. So it was nice to ra randomly seeing Damon Wayans. As you say, he has like two lines or something like that. He's barely in it. But I definitely recognized him. And, oh, that's cool that that, that there he is. And yeah, and I think one of the things about Serge that you point out is one of the things that I liked and sort of found refreshing about this movie, that on the one hand, he's being condescended to by all these fancy rich people in Beverly Hills, and he's he's from Detroit, and he's rough around the edges or whatever. But on the other hand, a lot of them, once they get to know him, or even just very quickly, are actually quite nice to him and they want to help him. And even the cops that he's at odds with, even Ronnie Cox is the sort of stern boss who is a very uh, stereotypical cop movie character, wants to help him and listens to him and hears about the evidence that he's collected and sort of reluctantly says, well, we don't have enough here and we can't follow through with it, but they they like him and i like that about it, it wasn't just a antagonistic relationship yeah the sequence where he gets taggart and uh, rosewood on his side where they go to the strip club and they kind of and axel kind of sees that it's going to be held up and he foils that plan and gives the credit to the the two super cops right really good and and that really makes him just a protagonist that not just the audience can like but that everyone likes i think yeah, I, I, I thought that was really, again, refreshing and not what I expected. I figured it would take the whole movie for them to sort of grudgingly respect him by the end, which I think is what happens in these kinds of movies a lot of the time. And that wasn't it. And so I like that about it. Um, on the other hand, the actual story of this movie about uh, Axel investigating the death of his friend who was involved in this uh, sort of uh, shady art dealers, side business and smuggling drugs is not at all interesting. And that's clearly the weakest part of the movie. Yeah, well, like we said, it went through how many drafts, right? But, um, you know, one thing I wanted to say, because when we were talking about Surge there, I, I want to say all the, you know, and, and Josh, you made it very clear to give Martin Brest his due, and here I will. All of the performances, like the Victor Maitland performance, the the chief of police, those all could have been way too big like we've seen in other movies. And they were all played like right, like the right way. You know, they were they were big characters because, you know, a chief of police is going to be a big character or a, you know, international crime boss is going to be a big character. But they weren't played over the top by any means. 
Yeah, I agree. And I mean, maybe in a weird way to the detriment in terms of the villain, because he's not really a very compelling villain and he never really feels particularly threatening. But you don't want him to overshadow Eddie Murphy and you don't want him to overshadow the other supporting characters, because really he's just a means to an end. He's just a way to kind of get the characters in these crazy situations so they can interact with each other and and so that they can be funny. And you want to focus on Eddie Murphy and Judge Reinhold and John Ashton rather than on this stupid villain. So I didn't necessarily mind that. And I think the movie is quickly paced enough that I wasn't ever bogged down in the story, which again, I think is something that happens in some action comedies. And they get so into this convoluted story that they forget about the jokes. And that didn't happen here. But the story was never really interesting. Yeah. But the jokes, when they work, they work so well. Like when Maitland has uh, Axel thrown out of his office and they literally throw him through a window and the Beverly Hills Police Department arrests him for being thrown through a window, you know, and Murphy really has a good time, like, you know, kind of being like, I'm I'm the one who's being arrested. You know, I was the one who was thrown through the window and, and he does really lots of good stuff there. Yeah, although that did, did seem odd to me, like, why would they break their own window? To throw him I actually wrote there. that down in my notes. I was like, why did they break their own window? <laughs> he's got, cause he's got, uh, he's got an endless amount of money. It doesn't matter to him. He was making a statement. I guess it just seems strange to me. Um, I mean, that is a funny scene and how he talks about, you know, being arrested for being thrown out the window and what, what happens if you, uh, uh, are thrown out of a car, do you get arrested for jaywalking? Right. Um, yeah, it's a funny scene, but that did strike me as a little odd. Did you like the hijinks with him when, he was getting to know Taggart and and Rosewood, and he sent them, you know, room service and and uh, you know put the banana in the tailpipe. That's a classic, right? Yeah, it's a great funny scene. And again, I think part of what makes it funny is their reaction isn't just the stereotypical like, "Oh, Axel Foley." I'm exactly. Get yeah, that would have that would have lessened the whole thing. So. Um, and it's so funny how how like genuinely excited Judge Reinhold is to get this free sandwich and right. he's asking for condiments and he's just so he has this sort of like childlike wonder uh to his character in this movie um and it just makes it so much more fun and even Taggart the other uh the John Ashton character who's more stern you can see him kind of being won over maybe little bit by little bit by Axel Foley. Yeah, because he's he realizes he's a good policeman, you know. He, Judge Reinhold, who I think is really good, like you said, as this kind of like boy wonder, uh, you know, who's just so excited to be there. This is only a year after uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So it's kind of a pretty good jump for him to move from there into an adult role like this. Yeah, I didn't realize that, but he certainly does. I mean, he's obviously the the kind of newbie cop or whatever, but he doesn't come off like he's a, a teenager. Yeah. Right, exactly. I think so. I think Fast Times was 83, so, you know. Yeah, no, that sounds about right. But yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think he's uh, he's part of what makes this way. If it was just an Eddie Murphy movie, it would be fun, but it probably wouldn't be the classic and the the major, major success that it is if it was just all about Eddie Murphy. So I think that's that's a key aspect of this movie. Did you find it surprising that they didn't try to play off any type of romance between him and Jenny, who just kind of serves as a tour guide character for him? 
I did, but again, I think that's also refreshing that you assume that that's what's going to happen and it doesn't happen. And I know I read that Stallone in his draft, of course, being Sylvester Stallone, wrote her into being a love interest. Um, uh, but I, I like that. I mean, because that's not what it's really about. It's really about like she's an important character and she's his friend and she helps him investigate. But the main relationship in the movie is between him and the two cops and they're kind of buddy friendship. And so I like that she didn't need to be a love interest, but she was still an important character and he still clearly had a lot of affection for her and cared about her. I mean, they do turn her into kind of a damsel in distress at the end, which is a bit of a cliche. That's fine. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it's okay. It's not, it's not overdone and it gives him, I mean, he's already motivated to avenge the death of his friend. So, but it gives him a bit of an extra motivation. Um, I don't know. Did it, did it bother you? Did you want her to be a love it, interest? It, no, it didn't bother me, but I did question it from the regard of this is 1984 and how many interracial like love stories do would we have seen in a mainstream comedy slash action movie, right? Because this isn't a movie about an interracial relationship. So I think in the 80s that I wonder if they just shied away from it. Whereas, you know, thankfully now you can have anyone date anyone and you don't have to, you know, hang a lantern on it, so to speak, and say like, oh, look at these people from different ethnicities dating. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that I don't know if it was that kind of concern, like, oh, we have this black star and this white actress, so we can't have them have a romance. Or if it was merely that the romance wasn't in the script and so they didn't need to worry about that. And I kind of wonder if they had decided to make her a love interest, if they had decided to go that route, if they would have cast a black actress instead of a white actress yeah. so that they would have gone through that. So yeah. I don't know. And like you said, in the Stallone draft, she is a love interest. So that's another question that, um, that brought it to my mind. But again, it's a fun breezy hour 45 that adds an extra 15 minutes to this movie. So. Right. And I think, you know, again, Stallone seems like the kind of guy that he'd want to write, you know, some hot female love interest for himself into his movies because that's just what he does. Uh, I could absolutely see that being the case. This brings up again the idea that it doesn't really come up much in the movie, but the sort of racial aspect of the story when you cast Eddie Murphy and he's not only a rough guy from Detroit going to Beverly Hills, but he's a black guy from Detroit going to very white Beverly Hills. And it seemed like there were moments that they acknowledged that, but it doesn't become the center of the story, which I feel like would have been kind of an easy way for them to go with the comedy. I agree. This is a, this worked really seamlessly. That That's a very good point, you know, because you do wonder, are they throwing him through a window and are they arresting him because he's a, because he's a black guy, but it's never explicitly stated. And I don't think any of the cops, you know, when they were reprimanding him, um, you know, they had a black police chief in the, in Detroit right there at the beginning of the movie. But I don't think any of the, the, the boss cops in Beverly Hills were like, well, you know, they were reprimanding him based on his actions, not because of, you know, his color. I thought that was done really, really well where you can ask that question, but they don't, they don't really hammer it for you at all. Right, but at the same time, they don't pretend that it's never a factor. I mean, there's the scene where he's making where he's making a scene in order to get himself a hotel room. And and he, I mean, and he uses the N-word and he definitely like highlights the fact that I mean he uses the the fear of racial discrimination among this fancy hotel sure, staff. Sure. So it's not like they're pretending it doesn't exist. It's just not 
the center of the story. So I thought that balance was done. Well. Right. And if you were going to do it, that's a good place to do it in the, the highest class snooty hotel that has their type of preferred customer that they like or whatever, you know? Right, right. And the same thing with the country club. Yeah, exactly. You know? And and again, I think that was something that going into this, I thought, oh, this is going to be a real dated aspect of this movie. And it wasn't at all. So I, this is, again, refreshing. A lot of the things. But one movie. thing that was dated and I, I, they didn't go as over the top. I mean, I thought Damon Wayans is banana man funny. You know, that the affectation that he used on his voice, I thought was, okay, that's funny enough. But Eddie Murphy, when he is going into the... Um, country club and he wants to see Victor and he's playing like his lover, you know, or he's pretending to be his lover. He goes a little, a little too much into the, uh, the fe territory for what you would consider a homosexual at the time, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. That was one of the few like sort of comic moments that I thought didn't really work. And I mean, maybe it's grading on a scale for the time period, but I'm looking at that and thinking, well, this could have been so much worse. Right. So Especially really considering some of his stand-up, which he's own, and he said, hey, this is what I thought at the time, and I was stupid. And I mean, I think, I think, you know, especially this season, we know we're getting into this with a lot of episodes, certain things that are what problematic, not politically correct, however you want to call it. I think as long as people are willing to say, look, this is this was what I thought then, but I've grown and I'm willing to own it. I think we we say that's good. And, you know, let's move on and look at the good things of the movie. Yeah. And I don't think that's something that brings this movie down. I think in some movies it does. And, you know, it's it's it, I watch a lot of old movies from I mean, from the 80s and, and all the way back to the 20s and 30s. And there are a lot of times when these aspects are so prevalent that it makes it almost impossible to enjoy the movie. Um, I don't think that's the case here at all. And again, I think even in that one scene where it's a little dicey, it's 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 really just kind of borderline. So I don't think that's a problem. And you wonder, and, and you know, you could argue that there are definitely very effeminate uh, uh, people out there, men out there. And, you know, maybe that was just his take on how that character would have played it at that time. But yeah, I mean, I think we don't, we don't, we don't like this moment, but I'm saying like, you're saying it could have been much worse. <laughs> right. Right. And I didn't, I didn't hate that moment. And I think it, it actually is a contrast. Like what you're talking about is a character like Serge, who is an effeminate gay man, but they don't play it as like, ha ha, look at how ridiculous he is. I mean, he's funny because he is, he's a confident guy and he fits in when Eddie Murphy does not. You know, he fits in the gallery where Axel Foley doesn't fit in. So I don't think the Serge character is making fun of that kind of person. Whereas when Axel does the impression in the, con right. in the country club, it is making fun of that kind of person. Right, and, I, and, I, and even and to a lesser extent, the Banana Man character, I just thought it was funny that that's how he chose to play it, but I don't think he was making fun of anything per se. Although I will say I saw Damon Wayans a few years ago at a comedy club I was performing at and maybe relying a little too much on these these uh, aspects of his past, let's say. Yeah, I can see that. And I can see, weirdly enough, Damon Wayans being maybe less progressive than Eddie Murphy about this stuff right now, unfortunately. Yeah. So, so. Um, Let's uh, get Dave involved in this and talk about... Uh, did you have a favorite song? Because this is a mega soundtrack right here and uh, really worked as far as that kind of, not just synth, but that kind of uh, 80s soul dance soul no, music, totally. I'd say. 
Well, I meant I mentioned it earlier. Actually, the heat is on. That was the one that stood out to me. Like that's how you open a movie is with the heat is on. Every movie should start with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I agree. I mean that mood that song is great. I feel like and as I'm listening to that, I remember this is like the golden age of rock songs with saxophones in them. Oh yeah. Um, and where did that come from, Josh? Hmm? It comes from Huey Lewis, of course. Right? Oh, oh, does it? Okay. No, it comes from Bruce Springsteen. I know I'm just, I'm just messing with you. Uh, but I mean, I think The Heat Is On is a great example of that. In fact, as it started and I for a second forgot and I thought, oh, is this a Huey Lewis song? Because it has a very similar kind of sound. Sure. Yeah, that's that's a great sequence and that's a great song that I think Glenn Fry recorded in, in one day and I'm sure did not anticipate becoming like a defining song for his career at all. I always think <laughs> of that Glenn Fry uh, sketch where Will Ferrell plays him. And Ben Ben Stiller's, you know, whoever, and the H is O, and they get into this erotic relation. It's a very weird, funny sketch. But I thought all the songs, uh, Neutron Dance, super, super, uh, sure. you know, the Pointer Sisters worked really well. And got two Patti LaBelle songs in there. So I kind of like stirred up a lot, the closing credits song. Yeah, all good. And of course, the theme song, I mean, it plays a lot, Axel F, but I don't yeah. think it gets, it doesn't get tiresome. Every time it, it started, I was like, yeah, I'm yeah. with this. I'm with well, they, you. They do that. They do that thing where each time it comes back, it's layered just slightly more each time, and so at least that way it keeps it a little fresh. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Faltermeyer, That's kind of those synth layers is a big thing for him. But I agree with you, Josh. Like we've talked about in the past, how movies in the '60s and '70s might find a song to use as a through line, and and it really kind of keeps a mood. And this one kept an energy along with the mood. So. It's just, I mean, man, did he knock that out of the park? So. Yeah, and I think that that is a good point that every time that song starts, it perks you right back up, you know, and you get excited about, oh, something's going to happen. And, and I think that works really well. I agree. I think we all feel pretty much the same on this one. Do you, do you, should we rate this out of five bananas in our tailpipes? <laughs> yes, and I think, I don't know, that's a... I don't know the phrasing on that there, but I think that's um, <laughs> that's a that's a good scale. So um, I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five. I had a lot of fun with it. It was a good time. Uh, you have to open your tailpipe pretty wide to fit three and a half bananas in there, <laughs> oh, Josh. God. We were just talking about this type of humor, Jason. <laughs> Josh. You and I might as well just hold hands while this is happening because I'm also going three and a half bananas right in the tailpipe. Dave? <laughs> it's a love fest, guys. Three and a half for me too. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Beverly Hills Cop. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this season premiere of our season on the films of 1984. We've been talking about the box office champion of the year, Beverly Hills Cop. And uh, we, we've kind of touched on some of the legacy here, including Eddie Murphy's career and the sequels and the just insane popularity of all the music from this movie. Jason, have you seen either of these sequels? Again, I feel like I have, but maybe I haven't. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I mean, yeah, this was the one that like, like you said, like, like kind of like we saw with The Rock a few years ago where he was like very popular and then all of a sudden he was the most famous person in the world. I feel like this is the movie that turned Eddie Murphy from very popular to the most famous person in the world, right? Yeah. You know, he's been so up and down uh, over his, over, you know, what, the last 20 years, but 
man, did he come back so strong recently with uh, My Name is Dolomite and then his SNL hosting. And now all these rumors that he's going to do stand-up, which everyone is excited about. Uh, I think he's going to be – I know they're working on the Coming to America sequel now. I think, like, maybe this is going to be the next golden age of Eddie Murphy we're, we're in the middle of. I hope so. I feel like Eddie Murphy's, if you look at his career, though, it's full of a lot of these, like, low points and then comebacks. I mean, he had Dreamgirls, which was a similar situation, I think, to the Dolomite movie where he'd done a lot of really – terrible stuff leading up to that. And then he was so highly acclaimed and it's like, oh, now it's time for his comeback. And then he he kind of squanders it by doing these terrible family comedies or whatever. I feel like he's almost like Adam Sandler, where he probably enjoys doing these terrible comedies more than he enjoys doing things that get him critical acclaim. Um, and so <laughs> he uses any moment of success to go right back to that stuff. Um, maybe not. But I agree that Dolomite is my name was was really entertaining. Uh, the Coming to America sequel is is coming on Amazon, I think, in December. Um, yeah. So I hope that'll be good. But I think throughout his career, he's had lots of moments of really, really low points and then back up to high points, both in terms of critical acclaim with something like Dreamgirls and just in terms of box office success. I mean, we can slag on Norbit, but it was hugely popular. That's so weird to me that Norbit was hugely popular, but... <laughs> I mean, I, I I go back to the Nutty Professor and just how much fun. And, you know, we know he was Donkey and Shrek. So when he has something that he can really lean into, uh, there's just really nobody better for a role that, you know, Eddie Murphy can take on. Eddie Murphy is generally the best guy for the Eddie Murphy role. Yeah. Some people would be like, what mm -hmm. if we get an Eddie Murphy type? And then you're like, well, why don't we just get an Eddie Murphy? And they're like, well, but what about an Eddie Murphy type? I'm just saying, Josh, he's got a certain energy to him. And when he's invested in that role and the material is good, I think he just knocks it out. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think I think uh, you're right about that, that he can still play that same kind of character, even though he's older. I mean, I think the Dolomite movie, again, is is a good example of that kind of character who also has a level of maturity or if not maturity, like it, it plays on the idea of him being older and, and Rudy Ray Moore in that movie having these kind of regrets, but he's still this very brash Eddie Murphy type personality. And I think that mix is good. He can do the opposite of that too. I just want to say like, I love Bowfinger and I love him in Bowfinger. And that is a completely opposite type character. Yeah, Bowfinger is great, and I agree, and he plays kind of, well, I mean, he plays two characters there and, and, and sort of the, the opposite ends of the spectrum. And speaking of people playing an Eddie Murphy type, I wonder, I, it's not available. I was trying to see if there was, a, there was a TV pilot in 2013 for a Beverly Hills Cop TV series featuring uh, Axel Foley's son, played by Brandon T. Jackson, who I assume would be doing the Eddie Murphy type. And I don't know if you think that would have been a good idea or not. <laughs> I don't think it would have, but I mean, what do I know? The Lethal Weapon shows going on season four, right? So no, it was it was canceled, but it did oh. it did it did make it to three seasons. So, so there you go. And there's always talk of a new movie coming out, which you know his son or this or that. I I have an interesting story from the world of stand up, Josh. Um, yeah. A few years ago, this guy showed up on the scene who looked exactly like Eddie Murphy, sounded exactly like a young Eddie Murphy, and. He was getting spots all over Las Vegas and he was his name was Brando Murphy. And um, 
you know, and he and every booker was, oh, that's Eddie Murphy's son. They just kind of are estranged so they don't talk about it. And it turned out Eddie Murphy had to sue this guy because he made up the story that he was Eddie Murphy's son and he was using it to get ahead with his career. Weird. Although yeah. I feel like Eddie Murphy has multiple semi-legitimate children. So maybe that was a smart move for that guy initially. Is he still, is he married to Mel B? Is that right? Mel C? Mel, one of the Spice Girls? Is, am I wrong? Weren't they together? Uh, they were together at one point. I don't think they are anymore. I don't know if they were even married. I think they maybe just were in a relationship. You know what? I didn't look up all of the I don't think we need to get into the, the entanglements like, sordid, of Eddie Murphy. Yeah, the <laughs> sordid details of his personal life. But they are making, I mean, that fourth film, Paramount signed a deal with Netflix to make the fourth Beverly Hills Cop movie back in, in November 2019. So it seems like it's still theoretically supposed to go forward. And I imagine they'll see how well the Coming to America sequel does on Amazon. And that might give them a sense of how much money they're going to put into a potential Beverly Hills Cop It's going to do but, great. It's coming to America's sequel is going to be big business. I, I hope it is. I mean, I, I hope it's good. Let's say that because I remember loving coming to America as a kid. I haven't seen yeah. it in a while, but very funny. Yeah, I, I hope uh, I hope that it's good. We mentioned uh, Martin Brest, who I wanted to give some credit to. And he had an interesting career. I mean, this was sort of like Eddie Murphy in a way. This was a movie that seemed like it could bring him to a new level. And after this, he made a couple of successful acclaimed movies, Midnight Run and Scent of a Woman. And then his career just like went into this- It's over. This nosedive. Yeah, it is over. I mean, he directed Meet Joe Black with Brad Pitt, which was kind of a failure. And then of course, in 2003, he made Geely, which still has this reputation as one of the worst movies ever. And it just killed his career entirely. He has done nothing since then. And you wonder how much of that is even his fault since- in the end, I think it was a studio cut and not his cut that, you know, um, got out there. But that 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 seemed like it was going to it's surprising that it didn't kill more careers, Geely, you know, so. Right. right. And I think the fact that it didn't, the fact that Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck are still working steadily. To me, I feel like Martin Brest on the strength of these great movies that he made in yeah. the 80s. Like he probably could get hired now. And I'm not sure. I mean, I haven't seen anything about what he's been doing with his time in the last 17 years, but I wonder if it just traumatized him and he felt like he couldn't get back on a set or something. I I agree with you. I mean, you had mentioned those two and I know, weren't you a fan of Going in Style, the movie in the 70s that he made? Oh, the was, original. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting, we talked about it when our in our episode on The Late Show. And yeah, it's 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 a kind of, fun, weird. I think it, it does this mix of like character driven stuff and comedy that, that he does here. Um, you would that think, was his strength. Yeah. You would think if nothing else, like an HBO show or something, he would be a valued producer and director, but yeah, he hasn't done anything. We want you to come back, Martin Brest. Do something, baby. Do an interview on awesome movie year, Martin. Yeah. Dave, After. reach out to Martin Brest for us. I'll work on it guys. I also want to yeah. see his uh, student film. Have you heard of anything about this? It was the screen debut of Rhea Perlman and starred Danny DeVito. Oh, no. That sounds interesting. Is that a feature film or a short it, I film? think it's like a 22-minute film. Hot Dogs for Gao Gwyn? I don't know. Oh, Gauguin, it. the painter, right? I assume. Oh, man, I feel like an idiot. I should know Gauguin. That's an easy one. But, yeah. And then uh, we'll just move right past my lack of knowledge on how to pronounce famous artists and move on to Daniel Petrie our screenwriter here who also did Turner and Hooch. 
Yes, the movie that uh, it was a JC from Screen Fix kept uh, bugging us about in our wow. 1989 season. Uh, he also wrote In the Army Now, starring Pauly Shore. So, you know, yeah. quite, a, quite a career. He's done a lot of TV and he comes from a whole family. Uh, his father and his brother were both very successful screenwriters. So it's, it's this sort of Hollywood dynasty in the Petrie family right, there. Right, right. And he's still a big industry guy like WGA and on all these boards and whatnot. So uh, I agree with you. We already mentioned the birth of Balky Bartokamis came from here, Perfect Strangers. And thank goodness it did, Josh, because uh, that's a classic. So, you know, really the, the two other, other major points are the Simpson-Bruckheimer reign, which, you know, before this started with Flashdance and then Top Gun, The Rock, Bad Boys, and a movie we talked about, The Ref. Uh, so that was nice. Yeah, I mean, as, as you said, Don Simpson, I don't, what, did, what year did Don Simpson die? I think I, I think it was like 95, down. 96, that area, so. I mean, so he died like right at the height of their success and he became this sort of legendary figure. But Bruckheimer has gone on and I think Bruckheimer, you said maybe he's not as well known for this stuff now, but he's proved very good at adjusting from one kind of blockbuster to another and he went into producing blockbuster TV with, you know, the CSI franchise and and police procedurals, and then even pivoted again from that to producing blockbuster reality TV. So, I mean, I think he's a very smart guy in terms of figuring out what's going to be the next big trend in something and being able to do the sort of maximalist version of that. So you got to give respect to him, even if you don't like the work that he does. Yeah. Am I mistaken or is he producing a lot of The Rock's movies now? Yeah, it could be. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he produced the movie The Rock, so um, he's kind well, of gonna... I, you know. I think Simpson. I want to read Don Simpson's book. I bet it's just nuts, but you know, they had a formula, and they they always talked about you know we know what we're looking for, we know how we're going to do things, and uh, it really worked. They 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 went hard at it, and uh, and it worked for a really long time. Yeah, and I think the other big legacy here. We talked about the soundtrack, but this. This created so many big hits that that sort of radiated out. I mean, this was a big launch for Glenn Frey as a solo artist. It was a big relaunch for Patti LaBelle's career. And Axel F, the song, became this massive thing that was covered multiple times. And I, I was looking up and I totally forgot the resurgence of Axel F as a, a ringtone by the like frog animated character, which just feels like such an artifact of the early 2000s. But that was a huge hit of this song again in the, the Crazy Frog version. I don't know if you uh, remember that one. How did it go, Josh? I mean, it went the same way. It was Axel F. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna hum it. You know how it goes. Well, did it sound like a frog humming it? Uh, I don't think so. I think maybe the frog did some like voices alongside it. I mean, I it was- he danced. There you go. Yeah, it was mainly a thing that people bought as a ringtone when people did that. Uh, when that was a thing. So again, like it's it's sort of a, it's like the equivalent of if it became a big hit on TikTok right now, you know, something that was sort of repurposed for the current weird internet craze. Like if a frog was on a skateboard. Exactly, exactly. It's much like that that we're seeing with Fleetwood Mac right now. Supposedly, Faltermeyer's involved musically with the Top Gun sequel. So I hope that's the case because, yeah, man, just as iconic as there is when you think of like the great, uh, soundtrack guys out there like Bernard Herman and Faltemeyer, like and John Williams, who we've talked about. So I'd like I'd like it. I'd like some more Harold Faltemeyer in my movies. Yeah, we need more of that. I, I feel like we haven't had, uh, you know, even though this is a very 80s associated sound, I feel like it's 
absolutely valid and we should certainly have more of it. Yeah, we see like Drive movies like Drive who lead that lean into it and do right. it really well. But mm. uh, yeah, I think he should still be working in movies. So I agree. And I wanted to give one more shout out to that Ben Stiller, Will Ferrell uh, <laughs> SNL, which was written and directed by Adam McKay. I watched it again last night. It's still just so bizarre. And the the, the idea of the, this pickup artist who's determined to pick up Glenn Fry and just everything about it is just weird and funny. And it is like one of the most memorable SNL sketches, I feel like, of all time. You talk about a banana in the tailpipe. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, <laughs> that is Beverly Hills Cop, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can, and please do, because we love this 1984 season we have for you, and we want all your feedback. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram, Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter, and um, uh, go for Jason.com. It's still a website. I try to block it out of my mind, but it's still there. AwesomeMovieYear.com, that's a little better. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. But let us know, what do you, what do you want us to cover this season? Yeah, this is, this is we've got a great lineup coming up this season, and we absolutely want to hear from people about what they're looking forward to. Uh, you can also uh, find me at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, at JoshBellHatesEverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can check us out wherever you listen to this great podcast. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue conversations about all the movies we talk about here on this show and on Piecing It Together. And if you sign up for the By David Rosen Patreon, we do currently have a bonus episode from our previous season, another music-driven film, uh, Saturday Night Fever, as well as cool bonus content from Dave's music and from Piecing It Together. So check that out on Patreon. And uh, what is on our next episode, Jason? Josh, I'm excited. Okay. Because <laughs> dramatic pause, Josh. Don't interrupt, please. <laughs> We're going into our first feature, Josh, and we're in the middle of the 80s, and you can't do the 80s without John Hughes, Josh. It is John Hughes. It is 16 Candles. First feature episode. Let's get it, big boy. So tune in next time for 16 Candles, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. And without any further ado, this is Jason H. <laughs>